I'm so grateful to God for you, Shannon, and so glad that uh, uh, we were able to worship together while uh, you and your family were here at Windsor, and um, Shannon uh, worked in our worship ministry uh, with uh, Katie Pesson, who's uh, one of our interns, and um, is interning in worship while he attended law school, and so, um, and they now live in St. Louis, and um, he practices law there, so anyway, we're, it's good to see you all again, thank you, uh, and welcome, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we are delighted uh, and so privileged to be able to worship together. And my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to be uh, the lead minister here at the church. And, and we're doing a series of messages to begin 2015 uh, called Unreligious. Now, that's kind of an odd sermon t- series for a church. I thought you people were all about religion. Well, not here. Uh, we're actually redefining what it means um, to be unreligious. And we're, we're really really trying to answer questions in each message in this series. Questions like, how can I live for Christ in a world that's indifferent to Christ? Um, how can I live a holy life? The word holy means different, set apart. How can I live a holy life without coming across as holier than thou? And, and how can we develop an authentic faith without being obnoxious about our faith? All right? And nothing tests, nothing refines our faith like suffering. Like being in those circumstances where you feel like you know, God is all you have. You're clinging to Him. And that leads me to our passage of Scripture that I want us to look at this morning. Psalm 88. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Psalms. You can find the book of Psalms basically by just opening your Bible in the middle. Um, and then you'll, you should find the book of Psalms. And then we're looking at Psalm 88. Psalm 88. And um, this is one of the saddest Psalms in the Bible. One of the, it's one of the... It, Here's what we're going to see this morning. This is one of the saddest psalms in the Bible with one of the most encouraging messages you'll ever hear. So, um, it's just that paradoxical. One of the the most sorrowful psalms with one of the most encouraging lessons. And we're going to see that lesson here this morning in Psalm 88. You'll find that on page 494 of your church Bibles. And... Um, Listen, here's why this is important for us. Look up here for just a minute. Um, You may be wondering, okay, you know, you've told us a little bit about the church and what you're doing. Who are you all? Let me tell you who we are, all right? There are three types of people here at Windsor Road Christian Church. Uh, Number one, there there are people who have lived through Psalm 88, They've lived through it, okay? They've survived Psalm 88, and they're here to tell you about that. That's, that's the first type that are here. Second type, there are people who are living through Psalm 88 right now. Once, 
Once you hear these verses, you're going to be thinking, oh my goodness, this is my life. Okay? You're going you're gonna to hear that. People who have lived through this, are living through this. And the third type, you're about to live through this. You just don't know it. Okay? So we're all here. And so uh, I just want you to know that that makes this very, very important for us to learn. So let's learn Psalm 88. I'm going to read this. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. To the choir master. According to Mahalath Leonoth. A maskeel of Heman the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol, uh, that is a term that describes the realm or the place or the abode of the dead. And we're not just talking about a cemetery or a graveyard. It's kind of a state, the abode or realm or place of the dead. Verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow every Day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? That means destruction or perdition. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness In the land of forgetfulness. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word. I have so many questions about this chapter. (laughs) Um, And I've put some of those questions on the outline that has been provided for you. Uh, The first of which is this. 
Do you think that someone who wrote something like this would be welcome in a church like ours? Can zombies come to Windsor Road Christian Church? Because that's what this person is. A zombie. I mean, they are the, they're a walking dead person, right? So are they welcome here? Are they welcome? And, and then by, by welcome, I don't just mean, you know, are you, are you welcome? But I mean, are their concerns welcome? Are their questions welcome? Can they bring this psalm with them when they come? Their complaints, their lamentations, their griefs. Can they? Would we let them in? And, and I mean more than, well, yeah, you can come. Go stand over there. You know, go. We, we, we want to talk about the playoffs. You stand over there. That's why we have that nook there by the coffee machine. Just go stand there. Now nobody's going to want to go over there to that nook, right? <laughs> I'll go over there. My goodness. I mean, this person is just in sad shape. This per- and this person in this psalm has been in pain for a very long time. Did you get that in verse 15? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. You know, I'm, you know, I'm about ready to die. I'm as good as dead. I have no strength, no hope, no prospect of a better day. And God, you did this. You did this. You put me in the depths of this pit. Your wrath lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me. You make my friends shun me. Why? Why do you do this? Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Can you feel this? Have you ever wanted to say this, but you just weren't sure if it was okay to? Scholarly quote of the week. You're going to love this. Scholarly quote of the week. It's from Gerald H. Wilson. Questioning God is an ancient tradition in Israel. I know it needs a little salt and pepper and Tabasco sauce to kind of let, but it's, but let, listen. Questioning God is an ancient tradition in Israel. From the book of Genesis, God's people have questioned him to his face. I'm first thinking of Cain, who after he had murdered his brother, God asked Cain about his brother's whereabouts. What did Cain say? To his face. Am I I the brother's keeper? I don't know. And then there's Abraham, the almighty creator, all-powerful maker of the universe, called Abraham, said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And after a while, Abraham got patient. What did he say to his face? What can you give me since I remain childless? What can, what can you give me? <laughs> talk, about, talk about thinking inside the box. And then there's Job. He's a professional. His questions about his unexplained suffering begin in Job chapter 3 and continue all the way up to Job 38. And and these questions and the questions that we hear in Psalm 88, they're, they're not merely requests for more information 
or more knowledge. They're from hurting people who have serious misgivings about the goodness of God, the God who refuses to operate the way we think this world should operate. We see unexplained suffering and we want answers. If there is a God and he is all-powerful and perfectly good, why do innocent people suffer? Why is God silent? It's Christianity's greatest challenge. You've heard this question in your sphere of influence. You've asked this question. I've asked this question. It's Christianity's greatest challenge. I mean, we pray to overcome an addiction, yet we struggle with it all our lives. We pray for vocational direction, and yet we remain lost. We pray to save a marriage, and yet it still ends in a messy divorce. We pray for healing, and yet our loved one dies. We pray for food, and yet people still starve. And we want to know, God, what are you up to? Why won't you answer? How long is this going to last? When are you going to show up? And my question is, you know, is something like this chapter allowed in a place like this? And may I speak clearly? Yes. 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 Over the years, I've had the privilege of listening to your stories And they're all different, and they're all the same. They're stories about not knowing where God is, stories of frustration at the silence of God. Randy, to me, God feels unresponsive. God feels absent. I don't know what to do with these feelings of anger and hurt and helplessness. I've tried combing the Bible for anything and everything and after The story is told. After they're done, they look at me across the table. Some of you have heard this from me. Would you please let me read you something from Scripture? And then I've read this very chapter. Psalm 88. And almost without exception, as I'm reading these verses, it's as if a boulder is lifted off your shoulders. And there's just like relief. Like I, you know, I didn't know that that was there. You know, I mean, maybe I've read it before, but I've not really read it, you know. At last, there's a chapter in the Bible that understands me. Psalm 88 understands me so yes yes this psalm and the questions therein are most welcome in this place and if you're asking those questions you're not the first person who has ever asked those questions they have been in your bible all along and they are welcome in the gathering i mean in this room they're welcome in worship with God's people. So the question then is, can we come alongside this person and sit with them and be sad with them and weep with them and listen to God's word with them? Because truth be told, church family, it was meant to be that way from the beginning. That's why we've been given this psalm. Look, before we even get to verse 1, that little 
preview section. I mean, that's part of this psalm. It's a song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. It's a, it's a maskeel. What's that? It's a literary or a musical term. And it means it's a, it's a teaching psalm. It's a psalm that's intended to be sung in order to teach, to instruct us, to give us a lesson. And, and it came from a real person, a guy by the name of, of Haman, Haman the Ezraite. Who's that? He was one of the singers. Read about him in 1 Chronicles. He was involved in the leading of God's worship. So yes, Haman wrote a song. And we don't know if it was about his personal experience or someone else's personal experience. But it was given for the congregation in worship. A teaching psalm. It's a psalm with a lesson to be learned. And just what is that lesson? What's Haman trying to teach us? What is this psalm trying to say? Here it is. Psalm 88 is a lesson on relentless faith. A lesson on relentless faith, stubborn faith, persistent faith, faith that won't give up, faith that clings to God with white knuckles. Ironically, ironically, the very psalm which at first glance suggests the absence of faith in fact demonstrates relentless faith. Faith is all over these verses. As Haman is Answering this question, this teaching question, what does relentless faith look like? What does relentless faith look like? Two parts. Part number one, raw conviction. Raw conviction. Part number two, persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Relentless faith is the sum of raw conviction plus persistent prayer. That's that's what's in these verses. Let's consider raw conviction first. Relentless faith is the raw conviction that God and God alone is the only one who can deliver. And we see that in verse 1, don't we? For all the overcast and gloom that this psalm projects, notice how it begins, literally, verse 1, Yahweh, my God, who delivers. Literally. And I would argue that this lamenting, weeping, mourning, grieving before the Lord is itself faith. Had the psalmist abandoned faith, we wouldn't be reading Psalm 88. There would be nothing to read. He wouldn't have written these words, but oh, did he write? Did he write? We got, a, we got some raw scripture here. And relentless faith gets raw before God. And I, often believers just feel guilty. You know, that they feel the very feelings that the psalmist has before the Lord. And as a result, you know, we, how did we, who gave, what pastor stood in front of what pulpit, in front of what congregation that said that, you know, you, you, need, you just need to be more Midwestern about your questions before God. That's what you need to be. You know, you know Midwesterners, nice, polite. Their corn is in straight rows. There are no straight rows in this corn. It's just the truck, there's an accident. Who talked? Who said that? Well, some someone said it and someone believed it, and as a result, you know, 
we stuff our feelings and we mask our feelings and we deny our feelings and we numb our feelings and we try to purchase our way out of our feelings. You remember Seinfeld? <laughs> Kramer and George. Kramer asks George, George, do you ever yearn? What? You ever yearn? I don't know. What do you mean? Do you ever yearn? Finally gets so annoyed at the question. No, I never yearn. I just crave. Well, what's the difference? That's the point. But we don't want to admit it. Because to yearn, I mean, it hurts to yearn, doesn't it? It, it hurts to groan. It aches to ache. But that's exactly what this psalmist does. And I mean, this psalmist just gets it out there. You did this. You did this. I want to talk to the person in charge. That would be you. You have put me in the depths. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. Relentless faith. It's raw. Raw conviction that, you know, and listen, in everything by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. In everything, relentless faith and raw conviction, cast all your anxiety on him, all. Relentless faith and raw conviction says these are my feelings, and they're dark, and they're distressed, and they may not even conform to reality, but they're here. Relentless faith and raw conviction, they Yearn and groan because when you yearn and groan, it means you're facing reality. You're connecting yourself to creation, did not the apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 8? All creation groans. Why? Because this, this world is broken and there's a holy discontent with the brokenness of our world. Relentless faith and raw conviction will cause you to groan louder, not softer. Christians should be the loudest groaners on earth. Because, because this world is not the way it's meant to be. We want that. By the way, what would it look like in your life for you to express that? What do you think? Maybe you need to write a poem or a song as Haman did. Or maybe you need to draw or paint. Or maybe you just need to slug a pillow. Or a punching bag. Or maybe you need to go to a quiet place alone. And speak out loud your lament to God. Yeah. Sit in that for a while. I didn't read two words in our scripture, but I want to talk about them now. They're words that show up in verse 7 and in verse 10. They're the words Salah. Do you see that? It's in italics. About in the middle column there of your page. What does that mean? What's Salah? Well, that's a musical term. Hebrew musical term. It means this, Salah. Pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. That means just sit in that for a little bit. You overwhelm me with all your waves. Sit there. Marinate in that. It hurts, doesn't it? 
But you can be raw before God. And your raw lament is the stuff of relentless faith. It is. The psalm says so. Relentless faith. Raw conviction and persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Relentless faith persistently clings to God in prayer when all visible evidence suggests otherwise. You know, think about it from a purely human point of view. It makes no sense whatsoever. You know, this guy's done. There, there is no visible reason for this person to continue trusting God. Their circumstances aren't getting better. They're as good as dead. They're not hearing back from God. And yet, verse 1 I cry out day and night before you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. There's this, I am not giving up. There's this stubborn trust. I'm thinking of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, who had this all-night wrestling match with some manifestation of God. And Jacob says, I am not letting you go until you bless me. I'm not letting you go. I'm thinking of the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, about the widow and the unjust judge. She came to him and kept harassing him, waiting for her day in court. He'd been putting her off. She kept knocking and Bugging him, he finally goes, she's driving me crazy. She is driving me crazy. i got to get her on the docket so I can sleep at night. And then Jesus says, if an unjust, lazy, no good judge responds to a poor lady's persistence, pleas for help, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you so much, respond to those who pray and never give up? And it's the only parable where Jesus front loads the Big idea of the parable. At the, at the get-go, Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told this parable to teach us that we should always pray and never give up. Always pray and never give up. And sometimes an unintended benefit of suffering is that our prayer life improves and our spirit endures and we toughen up. This is a wintertime psalm, isn't it? But the winter ends eventually, and springtime comes, and when spring comes, we, we, we find out who we are, and we find out why we do what we do, and why we are what we are. You know, the most important question, speaking of the tradition of questioning God, the most important question in the book of Job came from Satan himself to God. He asks this question. To God. Does Job serve God for nothing? Does Job serve God for nothing? And the rest of the book is an attempt to answer that question. Let me make it personal. Does Randy serve God for nothing? Does Randy serve God, be, or, or does Randy serve God because he's got good health and a nice house and a pretty wife and two handsome boys and a really cool looking church website? If God took away every reason for Randy to believe in him, would he? Would he? If, if the ministry was just God and Randy, would that be enough for Randy? Is God enough for Randy? 
Just because Randy decides to be a minister doesn't obligate God to give him a successful ministry. Everything I have, everything we have, comes from God's good and perfect hand. And God himself is the greatest good and the most perfect gift. And everything else on top of that is just grace upon grace. It's just given by a God who is not obligated. He does not owe. Anything God does is an act of grace. Or as one author put it, grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace is one-way love. And speaking of motive, this is the sweetest part of this psalm to me. See, see, relentless faith is the cry for help by someone who wants to be delivered from death so that he can proclaim God's greatness in the community of God's people. Why does this guy want to be delivered from death? Because death is an enemy, that's why. In Psalm 88, there's nothing good about death. The dead are in a pit, the dead are outcasts, the dead are cut off. The dead are in great darkness, the dead are in the land of forgetfulness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 26, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And relentless faith wants to be delivered from the final enemy. And why? Why? Because the psalmist says, I want to live because I want to tell your people of your mighty works and your powerful deliverance. That's why. And that's what's behind verses 10 through 12. See, do the departed rise up and praise you? Uh, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Do you, do you see it? The reason he wants to live is not just so that he can feel better and have a happy life, but it's so that he can be a voice of praise among God's people in worship. God, I want to live so that I can tell of your mighty deliverance. I, I want to give a faith story, the psalmist says. And I can't do that if I'm dead. I can't be in this room and dead. I can't. I can't speak of your wonder. So God, I'm counting on you. So help. Help. And, and, and what makes this psalm so meaningful and powerful is that it does not end happily ever after. You see that? The very last words in this chapter, chapter, Psalm 88 comes to us by way of the Hebrew language, and the very last words in Hebrew are simply, Companions, darkness. It's raw, and it's authentic, and it's sad. It's just sad. But it's not final. Psalm 88 is an important chapter in the Bible, but it's not the last chapter in the Bible, is it? <laughs> Centuries later. A rabbi from Galilee, a descendant of King David, came and said in this pit of darkness, I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said, Lord, I have come to do your will. And he spoke perfectly and he taught perfectly and he healed 
And the glory of the kingdom of God was ushered in by his life and by his teaching. And then he was accused of crimes he did not commit. And he was put to death on the cross. And on that cross, Jesus Christ cried out a one-sentence question which summarizes this entire chapter. Questioning has this great tradition in ancient Israel. Our king cried out in the pit, in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven was silent. On the cross, Jesus was afflicted. On the cross, Jesus suffered terrors. On the cross, Jesus was helpless. On the cross, God's wrath swept over him. On the cross, God's dread destroyed him. On the cross, Jesus' own friends shunned him. On the cross, Jesus' companion, darkness. Every reason for Jesus to trust his heavenly Father was taken away, yet he was relentless. He was relentless. He entered the pit, and in his death, he destroyed the pit. In his death, he destroyed and defeated death, which is why Hebrews chapter 2 tells us on that first resurrection morning concerning Jesus, he stood in the congregation. Hebrews 2.12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And that's why I'm a Christian. Every other faith, every other faith on the face of this earth says, here's what you need to do to bring yourself to God. And Christianity is the only one whose king says, I will bring you to God. I will bring you to God. Every other faith says, here's what you need to do to come to God. Christianity says, here's what God has done in Christ to bring you to him. God has come to us in Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Dead, buried, raised, ascended, seated, and now he has sent his Holy Spirit upon his people so that we are his community We're one. We're not alone. No one needs to be shunned. No one needs to be segregated to this silly nook in the corner. We're all here. All of us. Those who have survived Psalm 88. Those who are going through Psalm 88. And those who are about to. You see, Psalm 88 is one of 150 psalms, right? Imagine each of... These psalms being a worshiper. So there's 150 worshipers. Psalm 88 is one of them. One of them. So it's not meant to be read apart from the others. It's meant to be read in a community. A community of people who say, we want to hear your pain. Tell it to God. Tell it to us. The Holy Spirit resides in us. Tell it. And I think one of the most beautiful things... That happened in our congregation, just happened a couple of weeks ago, didn't it, Jonathan? As we were sharing in this Gratitude Sunday, and uh, we were hearing a couple of weeks ago uh, of God's goodness through uh, his people, and then 
very last to speak in this service, in this 1045 service, was Jonathan's brother, Jonathan Ramirez's brother. And he stood up and he said, I know that, you know, we've been hearing all of these gratitudes to God, but I just have to tell you that our family is all here and we were to celebrate Christmas together and my father was to be on his way here. He has died of heart attack and we are just heartbroken. And many of you just swarmed over the family and loved on that Psalm 88 family. They said, we're all here. And it was a holy moment, a holy moment. So know, know that you are not to be alone in this. We're here and we want to pray over you. That's why our elders are up here each Sunday. We want to hear your prayers. We want to love you. And I, I walked away from that thinking, this, okay, this is the way church is supposed to be. This is church. We're all here. Um, guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer a professor at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. In 1991, Jerry Sitzer lost three generations of his family in one instant. Uh, Jerry, his wife Linda, their four children, and Jerry's mother Grace had been on a family trip. And as they were returning home, a car with a drunk driver going 85 miles an hour swerved and crashed into them head on. And in the blink of an eye, I mean in the blink of an eye, Jerry lost his mother, his wife, and their youngest daughter. And Jerry Sitzer wrote with raw honesty about what it was like to be a single father, a teacher, a counselor to others. All while slipping into this pit, this black hole of oblivion and simply wanting out. Jerry Sitzer wrote, he said, one night I had a kind of waking dream. Waking dream. It's an interesting term. He said, the sun was setting and I was frantically trying to chase it toward the west, hoping to catch it and bring it back, but it was a losing race. And soon the sun was gone and I felt a vast darkness closing in. He told his sister Diane about that dream. And she said something that absolutely changed him. She said, Jerry, the quickest way to reach the sun is not to go west, but instead to head east. And to move fully into the darkness until you come to the sunrise. So counterintuitive, right? Jerry wrote... I discovered in that moment that I had the power to choose the direction my life would head. And I chose from that point on to walk into the darkness rather than try to outrun it. To let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever it would lead. And to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think that I could somehow avoid it. So 
Psalm 88 is heading east. And when you go east, you go toward the sunrise, which you can see from the opening of an empty tomb. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus Christ. For allowing this voice to be in this room, the room of your people. For it is your voice, the voice which you cried from a cross. A very important psalm, but not the last psalm. The last psalm comes from our king. Who proclaimed in one sentence, it is finished. God's people said,